Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Welcome to the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. I am here today with Sands Bar owner, founder, extraordinaire, Chris Marshall. Hi. Hi, Lori. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I'm really excited to have you as a guest. I have been watching you from afar since my sobriety started, my recovery started mm, about three, four years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I always like, I think it's close to five years. I don't even know anymore, which I love because there was a point where I was counting down the hours. Right, right. So thank you so much for your time. I super appreciate you. And I'm so excited to just chat. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with you specifically is because we met last year in person at the gala we put together in Reno, Nevada, which was amazing. And I couldn't imagine having a non-alcoholic cocktail bar without Sands Bar. Somehow it wound up that you didn't mind me hunting you down and stalking you enough that you actually came to Reno. And it was amazing. Oh, I loved it. It was... uh... That was a year, I mean, gosh, just a, a year ago. It feels like a decade ago. Um, but yeah, I loved just the way that you were so tenacious about getting me there. And uh, yeah, we made it work. And it was one of the highlights of a very uh, busy year for me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I love that you use a very PC word to describe me as tenacious because I'm sure that others have different words for that. But it all worked out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> If our listeners are early in sobriety or potentially recovering from other things, but just want to take a healthy approach to life and drinking, not necessarily alcohol, Sands Bar is one of the places that really exist in the United States. So can you tell us a little bit about the organization and how you started and how you run and what's the haps? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. Um, where to start? I I mean, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about my sobriety journey, but the why of my drinking was centered around being isolated and disconnected from everyone else in the world. I mean, I I felt that way since I was five years old. Um, When I started drinking was the first time I felt a part of anything. And that transferred from uh, high school to college when I joined a fraternity and drinking was this currency that we used for connection. I just learned that I belonged when I was drinking. And so that was a huge part of the reason why I kept drinking, even though all these negative consequences were coming up in my life. I still kept drinking because I felt like if I gave that up, I was surrendering the ability to belong to people or or to a group. And I just just couldn't do that. I finally found the thing and you were asking me to let it go. Right. Um, So I... uh, eventually learned that there's community in sobriety. Um, and that was part of what helped me to let go of the alcohol was understanding that understanding I had real mental health problems, uh, that I had been self-medicating with alcohol. Those two things 
enabled me to, to get away from the alcohol and then to move into sobriety, became a counselor. And then as my work as a counselor, I realized there was a problem that people were not finding any way to stay social. Uh, and that would that's usually what takes most of us out is not how hard sobriety is. It's how lonely it is. It's how isolating it feels. It's how people, uh, our friends abandon us and we have to say no to events and trips that we would normally say yes to. Um, so that's why I created Sandsbar to create a sober, safe and inclusive environment for people to gather uh, and to connect to each other on, on the deepest level. Oh my gosh. I love it. I wish we had one everywhere. I can't imagine what's happening right now because at this time of recording this podcast episode, it is sort of at the, I feel like this is the middle of the COVID situation. I don't think we're at the end. I hear in Nevada, we, our governor just said they're not releasing us into phase three. We're staying into phase two of going back out into the world. So I know that that's a concern what's happening with you and physically sans bar because it is an in-person situation. Yeah. Um, so, well, first of all, I'm, I'm based here in Austin, Texas and Austin is in phase like 900. Uh, we Stop just, it. everybody's just, just out doing whatever they want. Oh, there was no, what, what pandemic? Like it, it didn't happen. Stop um, it. Oh my gosh. I am surprised. Not surprised, because uh, Austin is Austin is its own little special place, <laughs> but the rest of it is Texas, and Texans just don't take kindly to being told what to do, um, and uh, I think that's a lot of it, and so when you leave the Austin uh, city limits, you see that people are just moving as though this is not a thing, um, but inside of Austin... And especially inside of the community that I'm in, which is kind of like the wellness and health focused uh, part of this city, there is that awareness. There is, you know, that that real awareness that this is not something we need to play with. And so, uh, Sands Bar has been closed since March seventh of this year. Right. And uh, while all the other bars. And then let me take that back. Some of the bars in, in Austin are opening. Some of them are not. I mean, we're at 75% capacity right now. And some bars are exceeding that. Some bars are at 100% capacity with no precautions. But then there's some bars that are probably losing a lot of money and they're staying closed because they don't feel like it's safe yet. So um, Sands Bar happens to be uh, in that camp. That just we just believe that if we're gonna say sober, safe, and inclusive, safety is number one. Safety is the most important thing that we can offer people right now. And until we can say that this is completely safe, you know, my, my rule of thumb is when they open up the governor's mansion, I'm opening up Sands Bar. <laughs> that's a good comparison too. Like that's that's my that's my line. When when you feel like the go when the governor of Texas feels like you can open up the mansion for tours. The sober mansion of Sansbar will be back in business. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. That is that is perfection at its finest. Like, yes. Open up those doors. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Well, that's a bummer for one that it's been happy, but it's you're alive, you're well, your family's healthy, we're good, right? Oh, more than that. I, I think the this has provided a unique opportunity because in addition to the brick and mortar that we have in, in East Austin, we were also on a 15 city tour this year. 
Yes. Doubling, almost doubling the amount of cities that we visited in 2019. And that came to a halt. But the good thing about this is, is now we're, be able, we're able to do virtual events. And these virtual events are reaching everyone across the world. Um, we did a, an event uh, two weeks ago and someone in Australia like stayed up or got up early, whatever, whichever one it was. Right. Be a part of it. It was, it was crazy. Um, so yeah, it's been great. That's amazing. And it's really cool. I love where I, I volunteer with a different organization where we host meetings for women online in recovery. And I always love the diversity too. You know, when we're doing things locally and we're here in our bubble, there's zero chance that we're getting women from everywhere, yeah. all walks of life. It's typical. It's going to be the same as you. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool. I love the virtual. I love the international. I'm glad that you guys are doing that. That's super cool. You mentioned earlier about your path to sobriety and recovery. Tell me a little more about that and how, I mean, do you have family history? Was drinking your issue? Did you do drugs? What, what brought Chris to what you may consider your rock bottom? Mm. Mm. I know. It's that's, such that's a, a great way to phrase that. Like what, what, what took me to the bottom? And, and I think that for me, it always has been mental health. That's, um, I think the first time I wanted to die, I was 12 years old. And I told my mom, I want to go to sleep and never wake up. Uh, I was at 12. And so, like I said, from five years old, my father, um, I mean, we're recording this just before Father's Day 2020. And uh, Father's Day last year was the last day I talked to my dad. Uh, and then he passed away in August of 2019. Uh, but my dad... I uh, was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia when I was five years old. My parents split up. And uh, my whole life, I was so afraid of becoming him. Uh, I saw that he was a very sick person. Um, he moved through this world, uh, a shell of his former self. He used to be a pro amateur boxer and uh, was just a great guy. But then just mental illness really ravaged his mind. Um, I was so afraid of being that. I was so afraid of becoming that, that I became this extrovert, this kid that was always on, uh, larger than life, just the, the class clown, you know, whatever you want to call that. I was that kid because I wanted people to accept me. I always feared that people were not going to accept me for who I am. So I always acted out and, uh, I got in trouble a lot in school. I was looking for my place. I never felt a part of, I never felt alone, like I belonged. Uh, part of my story is that I grew up in Sugarland, Texas, the sweetest town in Texas. Uh, is Sugar it Land. though? Is it? I mean, the sugar, there is a sugar mill there. So <laughs> it is the sweetest town in Texas. Um, there's also a Sweetwater, Texas, but Sugarland, Texas um, is where I grew up. And uh, it's a suburb of Houston. So Houston is very diverse. Sugarland at that time was not very diverse. And I was one of two black kids that were in my elementary school. The other black kid was my sister. Wow. 
So if if one of us was sick for the day, that was like the black population. It was uh, gone. Gone. Yeah. Like that was the minority population just wiped out for the day. But you're uh, like, okay, it's fine because I'll be back to that later on today when I walk home to see my sister, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we'll 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 make up the, the whole, you know, minority contingency uh, is that is in one house. Uh, it was a very weird situation, but that only forti- uh, fortified this belief that I was different than everyone else. You were already thinking that in general, and now you are being not only judged by what's happening in your own mind, which is cuckoo Stein, basically. Mm -hmm. Now you're wondering, should I be living? And by the way, I am black, and my sister and I are the only two different people because of our skin color in the school. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... The first time I was confronted with the physical real, realization of what I felt internally, like you said, yeah, I felt like I was always different from not having a dad to having a dad who was sick to having a single mom. All those, all those different things made me feel different. And then this was the first time I was confronted with it. And that's when I quickly learned that I was different than everyone. Like I was because of my my blackness, I was mm-hmm. different. Uh, that was so hard to accept, but something that I couldn't ignore. I had to, I had to accept it. I had to accept that I am different than other than my white friends. Right. And my goodness, is this not the time to be talking about it? I can't imagine. And I have finally learned to be in the place that it's not my place to imagine or to try to believe or to even think that or whatever. I am so fucking excited about what's happening in this world right now because I fully believe in my heart of hearts, I'm getting chills just thinking about it, that this is the time. Something amazing is happening and people are listening, finally. I really do believe that. It's not my fight to fight, but I sure as hell am out there to support everything that's happening. Um, So... You, my friend, have dealt with shit, essentially, that a lot of us will never experience. I mean, even me trying to explain to my white, very white suburban children, I mean, we have to use a lot of sunscreen here. Like, this is the situation, right? The the privilege, and we go back to that word, and I know I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things you have written recently, um, and we know we, he- we keep hearing this white privilege going on as well, and you know, sometimes I feel guilty, and, and I've also read recently that um, my black friends are saying, that's the problem. We don't want to hear about you feeling guilty because this isn't about you. And I'm like, well, fuck, I'm okay. So I'm going to not, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reel it back in and I'm not going to feel guilty that my parents were assholes and raised me or tried to raise me in a situation that allowed me to believe that you are bad because you're different. Um, you know, my guts and my inside told me while I was growing up in a very, I was the minority in, in New York where we grew up. And so most of my friends were either Puerto Rican or black. That was just, how it went. And God freaking believe me, if you came home saying that you had a crush on Pedro was not a deal that my dad was interested in hearing about. So my insides hurt since then, <laughs> just knowing that that is even a thing and that people that I know and love try to educate others that that's right. 
So I'm so glad that whatever it is that I have allowed me to not believe the bullshit that I was being fed for my entire life. But at the same time, thoughts are in my head that immediately come to my mind when I do see a black man coming towards me in the dark at night. Yes, I think about crossing the street because that's what I was told to do. And then my brain tells me, you're an idiot. That man's no different than your husband and keep on walking. And I do, but it comes up, right? It's immediate because that's what I was taught. Mm -hmm. So I just want to let you know, I'm unteaching any of that shit to my family, but I really, really love, I don't know if you have it up um, handy, that post that you wrote. Um, I just think this is so strong and I read it and I, I had tears when I first read it when you posted it. And then I reread it before this interview. And I thought, you know what, I would love if you'd be, if you would share. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever read this out loud. And I've never read it uh, since I wrote it. Because that's like, I don't. So I, what so I'd I, like, I'd like to announce that I have an exclusive right here with Chris Marshall from Sandsbar. Never read this again, because for me, it's I live it every day. So why? I write it or write, read it. Um, I I'll tell you why. Here it is. Okay. I'm going to tell you why you read it. You read it to educate. And that's what we're going to do here today. And I'm really excited about this. I think that this is a page turner in history. I think that we're part of something um, that I am going to be proud of being a part of, which is making change. And however, I'm brought to do that. And today I feel like just having this conversation with you and getting that out to the public and having your beautiful thoughts that you put to paper be read to everybody else. I'm all geeked up about it. So whenever you're ready. Okay. All right. So this okay. is called, <laughs> this is called the burden of blackness by me, Chris Marshall, a black man. I have been asked to prove that I belong in a common place like a community pool or playground. When encountered by law enforcement, I have flashbacks of watching people who look like me being shot and killed. The first thing I ask myself is, how can I make sure this officer understands that I am not a threat? I have been called boy and nigger by business owners and strangers. I have had to endure offensive black jokes told by my friends and had to laugh it off because I didn't want to appear overly sensitive or be rejected from a social group. I have been told that my fears of being killed, harassed, or discriminated against are illogical. When I can name five black men who are dead because of the color of their skin. I have had absolute strangers stop me and ask my children where their mother was because my skin is darker than theirs. I've been called surprisingly articulate. I've been called one of the good ones. There are towns I will not stop in because I fear the color of my skin will get me killed. I fear getting angry because I don't want to appear to be a mad black person. This is the burden of being black. To be clear, I love my blackness and I celebrate all races and culture. I just dislike the term white privilege because privilege evokes this notion that one is exempt from struggle. We all experience negative things in life, and those hurtful moments are very, 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 very real. As a cis man, I do not carry the same burdens as a woman. What we, 
are saying is that this country was founded upon the ideal that all people should be equal, that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is my birthright. I do not have to protest, riot, or beg for these rights. So long as I carry these burdens, I will have no life that enjoys real liberty nor peace of mind to pursue my happiness. I don't want to drop my mic because it's going to make a really big sound, but that's a mic drop. Boom. Just so many things about that. Again, some of us will never, a lot of us, a majority of us will never experience those thoughts. A majority of us will never have to sit down with our children and explain why someone pulled over and said, hey, where's your mom? What are your feelings? What I feel like what happened recently, which was us viewing the killing, the murder of George Floyd, I, I feel like it was almost the World Trade Center. Everybody knew where they were, what we were doing, where, what, how that happened. You almost lose your breath thinking about it. What were your thoughts? It, it, it was, I knew this was going to be a big thing because this was the first time people could see for themselves the reality that most black people have known for a long time, which is that uh, you can die in this country just based on the color of your skin, nothing else. Uh, nothing George Floyd did if he was, if he was guilty. And I think that's the other thing that uh, people kind of skip over is this idea that if someone, someone must have done something to deserve to die. And in this country, that's not how we operate. We don't operate like you're a good person, so therefore you get to live. <laughs> uh, we operate with the rule of law. And if you've broken a law, there's a process for that. Then comes trial. Sentencing. Yeah, you don't get killed on the street because right. you counterfeited potentially a $20 fucking bill. And even if you did that, right? Right, even if you did, if your car was filled with fake money. Did that, if you, nothing deserve, nothing that... He did that day uh, warranted his death. Uh, and that is, I think, the. I, I'm, I'm so sorry that it happened. And I'm so sorry that so many people had to see it and it traumatized them in much the way 9-11 did. I think that's, that's very uh, correct, Lori. I think you're very right about how it was a 9-11 moment in that you could see it for yourself. Yeah. I remember watching that second plane fly into that tower on live TV, I was a senior in high school and we were watched it in Miss Gerstack's English class. Like I remember exactly the moment that I saw that that plane in real time hit that building. Absolutely. I think and we all do. It my consciousness, right? And I think that that's what we're seeing now is the, the consciousness of this country being shifted. Uh, we're, we're aware more than ever the reality that people of color face in this country. Yeah just sends chills because you know that's your life. And this isn't something I honestly will ever, and a majority of us will ever have to deal with or face. Yeah, why I say that, and that's a strong statement for me to say, but the reason I say that is 
that is a big thing, right? But what really, what really hurts and what really kills people is the small ways in which that happens, right? The kneeling on someone's neck happens. Not believing that a client is a patient in rehab is really detoxing because black pain is not recognized and identified and treated the same way white pain is. Oh, he's faking it. Oh, he's, you know, he's just, he just wants more meds. That's med seeking behavior. The way that little boys, little black boys and brown boys in this country are called problem children and lazy. When other kids are looked at having attention deficit disorder or problems at home. Yes, it's horrible, but there are so many other things that happen in this country with black women and the way that black women, uh, the, the death rate amongst pregnant African-American women in this country is just unreal. And no one talks about it. No one talks about the mortality rate mm-hmm. of pregnant African-American women in this country. But I would imagine that if you've lived in the Middle East your whole life, seeing what happened on 9-11 was just another day, right? You see, right. When you, when you see terror every day seeing something that was bad looks like just every other day of terror. Sure. Well, that's a unfortunate, but it's a great perspective and way to put that because yes, I think you're right. Watching for me, watching that disgusting, vile human being with a smirk on his face and his hand in his pocket just screamed to me in my being everything that any person of color or minority has been talking about injustice. It just hit me. I was like, this is what everybody's talking about. We're freaked out that this has happened. And I'm like disgusted and like, oh my God, let's go kill this guy. And you're like, bitch, we've been doing this. This is happening every day. Like what the fuck? I mean, you know, uh, Philando Castile in the same state, you know, was was shot by an officer for just reaching for his gun license to prove he had a weapon on him. Like, the, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice. I mean, I can go down the list all day. Right. Um, you know, I, so, yeah, I understand how shocking and gripping it was. And, and, it not, and I don't want to sound ins- like, it, like it didn't impact me at all. I don't think that's how you um, sound at all. I, 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 your point is very well taken. Just as a body of work, right? Like the systemic uh, injustices of this of this country, as a body of work, that was a loud uh, note. But the entire work is is just a a a whole system and a whole song of injustice. It was just a loud note and a very painful song. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, so I, I wrote that. because I wanted wanted white people to understand, because I spent most of my life around white people. Uh, This country is majority white. I don't know if most people are aware of that. For now, now it's majority white. Um, And so I think white people are having a really hard time right now. I've never had this conversation about race without a white person telling me I don't, I could never imagine. Right. Every white person says that. Of course, we don't know what the hell to say. We literally are like, what just happened and why? You know what? You know what kind of makes me mad? I mean, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be straight up with you. Like, I, I say this because I feel like it gives me some cred. Like, I have credibility because I grew up in New York and I was on the streets and the projects were just across the street from me and I was the minority. So I feel like that gives me credibility 
to understand the black population, which is bullshit, but that's just how I was raised. That's how I feel. And because I hated the fact that my family spoke the way they did about anyone that wasn't white. But this is the thing I feel for myself, like in the, in the very recent, you know, tens of years is people are trying to be PC, right? Um, for a minute, and I still think that this is correct, but at this point, I don't fucking care because it's obvious. I don't teach my children that we aren't different because we are different, right? Like there's this mindset that color doesn't matter and, you know, we don't talk about it. No, fuck, we talk about it. Yes, that gentleman over there is black. His skin is very dark. Mm -hmm. Mommy loves him just the same as she loves daddy. He's a very good friend of our families, but he is different. You're seeing something, right? To not be able to say black or African-American. Well, because I'm American, I'm not. There are a lot of things, right. I think, in the world or, uh, you know, not in the world, whatever. In my life, I can't speak for other people that I notice is uncomfortable for people who aren't straight up and aren't capable of saying, hey, friend that has black skin, is it really horrific for me to say that you're a black friend of mine or do I need to use this other term? So I feel that that also throws into this mix of racism where people don't even know what the fuck to do anymore because they don't want to offend, but then they wind up being idiots and doing so anyway. So it's like this just vicious, vicious, vicious cycle. Um, And I don't know why I just decided to go on that ramp because I do find that I... Oh my gosh, I almost said it. I almost said it. And I read about this so much. Chris is don't say I am not racist. (laughs) But here I am. I'm saying it. I'm not racist because I have a black friend, right? You hear that shit all the time. That's literally the statement that I hear the most. Like, let me absolve myself from a race from racism in a racist system, right? Um, I hear that all the time. And and it's okay. Um, I get the the need to defend yourself, right? Um, when the Me Too movement happened and uh, all my female friends were talking about their experiences, I felt this need to defend myself. Like as a man, I am not, I have female friends. My mom's a female. I would never, you know, but if I'm honest, I have to acknowledge all the times that I've not said something when a guy has commented on a, on a woman's body in passing or all the ways that there was locker room humor. And I didn't, I laughed along because I didn't want to feel like left out, even though I knew it wasn't something we should be, you know, like I was complicit in a system that put women in a secondary position in this world. Right. And I dislike that. And so, yes, Part of me initially wanted to defend my, my maleness. It wanted to absolve myself of this system, but I had to acknowledge that I am so part of that system. I am so there. And, you know, at this point, I think there's a lot of tippy-toeing around to try to figure out, you know, you hear the word, you hear the term white ally, and, you know, immediately you're like, oh... I- that's me, right? Well, no, I can't choose the fact that that's the case. And I have to do something more than just throw on Facebook that I'm supporting Colin Kaepernick today after I've been burning his jersey um, since he left, right? Like there's so many things. But what I love about what's happening right now is I have woken up. 
I have realized that I don't know shit. I don't know. I don't know. Someone recently was talking about um, how literally their grandfather was a slave, right? Like this is somebody who's my age that two generations ago. Oh, yeah. Like, why do I not know this? And you know what? It's because I didn't care to. I didn't care to figure out that information. And also, to be fair, I mean, and, and that's where I hear a lot of people, by people, they really are coming down hard on themselves. And I'm not, for, I'm not forgiving or excusing, excusing, you know, racism. Oh, sure. Yeah. But the, the part- but we're not racist because we have black friends. Right. Yeah. Not racist. Um, <laughs> but I, mean, I, really I, I really feel like, okay. and here's my concern. Here's why I, I, I ask people to be a little gentler with themselves because you will burn out. Right. If you were like, why didn't I know this? Why didn't I know that there was a black wall street in Oklahoma and um, it was burned and bombed and everyone was murdered in it. Not that long ago, you know, how did I not know that uncle Ben's and aunt Jemima were inherently racist companies? It's like, and I'm just learning that and I've served, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Now it's your, it's incumbent upon you to learn that. But I just see a lot of white people really beating themselves up or feeling shamed or feeling overwhelmed. And the idea is not to overwhelm you. The idea is not for you to wallow in your, uh, your, your, your whiteness. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so, no, the idea is that you learn enough, just like I learned, like as a, as a man in this country, I enjoy privilege. Even as a black man in this country, I enjoy privilege. The thing about that scenario, Lori, when you said a black man walking down the street, I never once walked down the streets of this country and I've been you know, all across this country. I never walk down the streets and feel uh, that a woman is going to harm me. I just don't. As a man that just never crosses my mind to right. walk, to go across the other street because a woman is walking my way. That is a privilege I enjoy. But at the same time, I also have these real things that are, are getting me, you know, they're, they're, that could hurt me, right? That could kill me. That I, you know, I, now if I see a cop walking down the street, I have a little different fear. Yeah. So part of this, I think, is to, to acknowledge that we, we have a lot of work to do and it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And hopefully with the conversations that are happening in the world really right now, what I love seeing is the reminder to not make this a trend, to not let this just be something that's trending on Twitter and then you want to be a part of it. And, you know, you can almost see that happening. Like, okay, this happened with George Floyd and everybody's protesting and this is happening. Like there's change being made. They're talking about reform. There are certain cities that are saying, this is what we're doing today. I'm not even waiting for the government. And then you have this amazing law that's passed for the LGBTQ um, community. Did I say that right? LB, lesbian, bi, I, it's a really long acronym, but. I just say LGBTQIA+. Okay. That's just me. Um, That's just me because I have a great memory and I can remember 17 characters. (laughs) What I love, know and love is that everyone in my mind, while we all look different, while we all want to be either a boy or a girl or have a penis or a vagina, what the fuck ever your thing is, you are human and you have every right than other humans. And so when that happened, I was so glad that that community specifically, um, that this um, Supreme Court ruling 
was out there. It almost, in my opinion, because again, the news took a little turn. Like now we're focusing on that community and a little more quiet over here about what's going on in the Black Lives Matter community. So I'm just hoping that there's enough love and interest for everybody to just go out there and keep things moving. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think the LGBTQIA plus community uh, has experienced, and the reason, and you know what, the reason why that rolls off my tongue so easily. Please tell me because I feel really, really inadequate right now. It didn't initially. <laughs> it didn't. Not. And and I and the reason it didn't was because that wasn't my community. I wanted to be an ally and someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a gay man told me one time that the worst thing you can be is an ally because ally indicates a partners from, uh, if you want to be with us, you are with us. Mm. And, and I've, I've never forgot that I am a straight cis man. I was, you know, that's how I identify as a heterosexual male, but I am part of that community. I and like if that. I to really support it, I need to learn what each of those letters mean, why, um, why you say plus, um, why there can be one T or two T's, um, and, and understand that I'm still going to get it wrong. I still get talking about um, queer folks wrong or talking about trans folks wrong. I, I don't get it right. I mess up all the time. I mess up pronouns, and I, and I hate it because I know that that's not what I mean to do. Like, I really don't. Well, and I think, too, when you, for me at least, right, I feel like it seems like I don't care. And I do. I just, I really have a shitty memory and I'm not good with acronyms. And when I worked at Microsoft and I was, I I still don't even know. I worked in the OEM group. I don't even know what that was. (laughs) Well, whatever. I got paid well. (laughs) My gosh. I love talking with you about this. I don't want to take up our whole hour yeah, I will say one. I just want to say one thing. And, yes, you know, of course. You can work this. You can um, <laughs> work it I, out. Yeah, you can work it out. However, but I just think that it's important to say that the way that this keeps going, because you were like, oh, well, this uh, Supreme Court decision came out and Black Lives Matter is over here. There's so much intersectionality between those two, just like um feminism and black lives matter. There's a lot of intersectionality there, just like, uh, conservative issues and, uh, and being part of the black, there's so many, there's so many intersections here. Right. And it's like, that's how you keep on moving this ball forward is by understanding that there's many intersections between all of these topics. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm glad that we can transition, but I, I definitely am glad that you bought it up. I feel they're really awkward. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to talk about this stuff, so I'm good. You seems like you talked about it just fine and you're teaching, which is, I think, you know, that's one of the things when stuff like this happens and we all, what you've heard most is someone saying, oh, I have a black friend, so I'm, you know, excused or whatever. Um, I have another gentleman that I love and is very close and that I'm very close with. And I talked with him immediately and I said, Hey, you know, what do I do? Like, I'm looking to you. And he's like, why are you looking to me? I don't freaking know. Like we're all, here we go. Listen. And just said for me, the most basic and helpful thing was to keep being yourself because he's very aware that there's nothing hateful in my heart and I want nothing but um, the best for everyone in the world. And secondly, teach your children differently. You know, he asked specifically, 
does your seven-year-old have any reading books, any picture books with a black girl or a black boy in it? And I'm not ashamed of that, but I'm like, no, but you start feeling, and then you're like, oh fuck, now I know what people are saying. Like, where do you even find that? When your little girl is growing up and Santa's coming and you're like, she deserves a beautiful book that represents her family and culture. And you have to special order that shit on Amazon because God forbid you fucking walk down to your local store. But I haven't experienced that. So I just. And that's, and that's, and that's, that's the privilege. And I think that that's what people are, are starting to wake up. Just like, just like that was a perfect example. Like, oh my gosh. Um, I never realized that if you want to see yourself reflected, you have to go look for it. It's not the first thing that's available to you. Right. Um, I'm glad you're recognizing that this is something that is still a work in progress for you. I think that that's very important that we all recognize we're all a work in progress. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate that. I promise I will never, ever, ever, I am promising this right now that I will not promote you as my one token male person on my podcast because that is not where I'm at. I think that we could do a much better job uh, as, a, as a recovery community, accepting um, black men. I mean, I know that I'm not the only person of color who's felt like we're the only ones there, the only ones in the room. Even in predominantly uh, diverse cities, you know, like a Boston or Atlanta, sometimes maybe not Atlanta because Atlanta's got, got a lot of diversity going on. But some places you just feel like you're the only one or you don't really see m many other people in the rooms. So what my experience has been is that uh, it's hard to talk about race in the rooms, uh, in recovery in general. I've often not shared things about prejudice or race because I, I knew that the room, I, I mean, I could see that the room was all white. And most importantly, I, I knew that 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 becomes an outside issue. And I've seen people being, you know, kind of talked down like, hey, we don't talk about that here. Uh, so yeah, if someone's 30 days sober and they're struggling because they feel like they can't get a job because of the color of their skin, they can't bring that into a room into the rooms because they feel like that's a, the people in the rooms feel like that's an outside issue. I've seen that. I've experienced just different, you know, cult, you know, being called so articulate and so intelligent in a meeting. I'm like, what else? Am, I'm called. I'm a college educated person. Like, what else am I supposed to be? Right. Because of the color of your skin, you're not smart. Yeah. Or exceptionally, <laughs> I've exceeded expectations. Like, my, my goodness. Um, aren't you an articulate fellow? Oh, the fella. <laughs> My gosh, boy. Oh, so angering. Yeah. Um, what about your, your own family? Like what I'm imagining is that similar to what you said earlier, we were discussing it's difficult to see young black men being judged as just being like, oh, that's just him or he's when other races or other family members in the community are being told they have ADHD or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So being able to admit to the fact that you do have a problem with either drinking or drug use, or even like you said, your mental health issues. Now, is that something that you had to deal with, with your family specifically as a black man? Is that a thing? Well, you know, because of my father, uh, actually, 
the idea of me having mental health problems was not such a far-fetched idea. I think if it, if it wasn't, if he hadn't have had mental health problems, it would have been harder. But because they already had, and I never, that's, that's definitely a point of gratitude, Lori. I never, my whole life, I've never realized that. Had he not gone through what he went through, there would have been no framework for my family to understand what mental illness is. But because he had gone through that, they understood that, okay, something's not right. And when I've said the things that I said and I behaved in ways, um, they understood that this wasn't all just, you know, substance use. And I, I was mostly an alcoholic. Um, I, I, I stuck to alcohol. Uh, did I try other drugs? Yes. But alcohol was really my drug of choice because it was so easily available. And, and honestly, I, other drugs made me feel like I wasn't in control. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense because it totally does. alcohol doesn't make you feel in control, but I know that I can drink this amount and feel eh, kind of this way or not, or drive to Mexico. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I knew that if I did another kind of drug, I may be on this like hallucinogenic journey for the next, you know, six. I didn't, I didn't like that, that lack of control. Um, sure. Alcohol is my main drug of choice. And you know, at the beginning, it really helped to quiet down um, the anxiety. I really felt less anxious. And so, you know, to answer your question, I think because my dad was mentally ill, it helped to, to provide a framework. But then also, uh, I think in the, in the African-American community and communities of color, we're just now starting to understand that we are capable of having mental health problems as well. Uh, that, that's not something that's always been the case. Uh, when you go to mental health facilities, you see very few people of color. Um, you see a lot more people in prison with mental health problems than you do right. see people that have mental health problems of color in treatment facilities for them. So this is, this is something that, people of color are becoming more aware of. It's becoming more widely talked about, talking about our trauma, cultural and, and racial trauma. is something that I'm hearing a lot about. So yeah, in any other circumstance, maybe it wouldn't have been as believed or my, my family wouldn't have understood what was going on with me. But because they had seen my dad struggle um, with mental health stuff, it helped them to understand who I was. So his mental illness was obvious. This wasn't something that your family was like, oh, Uncle Joe's in the back and don't talk to him. Like this was something that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I mean, to see someone go from, you know, working a good job, moving up the ranks at a, at a great job, boxing on the weekends, um, you know, building a house, they've just built a house. Uh, and they, I mean, just my, my family was as idyllic as you could imagine, you know, just the American dream with, without the picket fence and dog. I mean, two kids, both people were working great jobs and uh, his schizophrenia really began to manifest. And if you know anything about schizophrenia, it's, it's really paranoid schizophrenia. It's very hard to continue living life that way. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but it sounds like the little bit of good that came from it was just discovering that framework was 
was built for you. And I'm so glad that that is a gratitude today. And I'm really sorry I didn't say this earlier when you mentioned it. And I know that um, last year that you lost your father, and I know that you took a little trip to Tahoe when you're out here in Reno, and you really felt something unbelievable there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. Um, that was a spiritual experience. There's no other way to say that it was a spiritual experience. And, uh, in the last couple of months since that experience, you know, I look at the, I look at the picture of myself, uh, right, right on the shores of Lake Tahoe. And I look at that about once a, once a week and it just, I'm glad I took that picture because it just reminds me of, of the, of the power of that place. Um, I remember reading the the placard that said this was the, you know, spiritual center of the universe for the uh, first, you know, nations people that lived there. And, and I could feel it. I could feel something very magical about that. And then driving back from uh, Lake Tahoe back to the Reno Sparks area, uh, man, it was, it's one of the most impactful experiences I've had. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad to hear that. I love it. I love it. I'm so glad that you were able to experience that. I know that I was cuckoo crazy at the whole time. Like, oh, come on, come on. I'm going to take you up there. You're like, girl, listen, I can't one more minute with you because I was going the whole weekend. I'm so happy. What I do love though, is we were able to have a frank conversation, which you know that for me in recovery, we were able, you were easily able to say, Lori, I'm just going to go do my own thing, I think. And I was like, cool, man, go for it. Years ago, I would have been so mad and judgy and like pissed, but I'm like, absolutely. Absolutely. I totally get it. So I'm so glad you experienced that. And I have since that time that you shared recognized that while this is just a half an hour away from my home, I rarely spend time there. And so we have been going up more often now and allowing my children to experience that as well, just because it is just something so different. And because of your experience, we do tend to go up there more now because it was a great reminder. So we're coming towards the end of our hour. I did want to talk to you a little bit about family because we did touch on your dad and that you lost him. But you know what? I just don't feel like the world knows enough about Chris's personal life. And when I say the world, I mean me. Go for it. You have a lovely wife. I do. Yes, I have a lovely wife. And two children or one child? Two kids. Two kids. We adopted. uh, My wife and I adopted. It's been one of the great pleasures of my life to be a foster, first a foster parent, then an adopt parent. And uh, we loved fostering kids. And we had so many babies uh, come through our house. We specialized in babies. So, you know, I I think about that a lot, you know, my personal life and how much or little I share of it. And it's really the fact that I just enjoy having a part of my world that no one else gets to know. You know, my wife is very content with never being in the spotlight. That's just not her way. Me, I'm not afraid of it. I'm, you know, much more okay with it. But yeah, you know, I talk about my mom, talk about my, you know, my sister lives in Pennsylvania. Like there's, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm in semi-open book. Okay. Well, I would like to thank your wife for um, not taking up the spotlight that I'm always seeking. 
Yeah, you can have you can have all of it. You can have all of it. I don't even want it. You can take it. Uh, yeah. For someone who has such high anxiety and and social anxiety, I I truly do love these sort of interactions. But I just I love the connection, and I I do tease, and I understand about privacy. Um, I have a husband that zero chance we were getting married unless we eloped. I mean, it was literally he was like, "We're not getting married in front of anybody." <laughs> And we're going to go elope. Guess what? In Lake Tahoe, by the way. Oh, and, and what, a, I mean, what a, just a lovely place. I mean, I just, I forgot where I stopped, like right over the border between like uh, Nevada and California. Yeah. Another like mile, there was like a subway that I stopped. Oh, in Kings Beach. Maybe that's where it was. A subway sandwich shop, not a subway like underground. That would be weird. Uh, I know, that's what I'm saying, peeps. I, for anybody that thinks that there's a subway in Lake Tahoe, there's not. It's a subway sandwich shop. Weird, like... Yeah, just take the A train down to. Uh, so, so there was a subway, and I think there were. Was it there that there was a gondola? No, I might have stopped in two places, but I remember at some point there was a gondola somewhere. South Lake Tahoe has the gondola. North it, Lake it, Tahoe. It was South Lake Tahoe. Yes, it was like this little community like place, yes. and there were bars and restaurants. Heavenly. It was. Um. It, it just it it was amazing. It just something about the the people being so, I think that, that, that part of the world changes people or shapes people in a way that nowhere else in the world really does. And they were just enjoying their time together. I just set their people watching. And so when I come back to Reno Sparks, um, I, uh, I'm going to bring your wife. I will. You know what? I'll bring my wife. I'll bring kids. I mean, if you really want to know, you can find it on Instagram and Facebook. I don't really want to know. I will leave the only thing to you. Nope. If we're not sharing it here, we're not sharing it anywhere. <laughs> but also because, and I, and I, this is, this is just real, uh, just on the record, you know, my, my, uh, my children's bio parents are still very much alive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, we, we try to maintain that privacy. Listen, I, you don't have to explain to me. I'm totally pulling your leg. I'm just going to keep on asking you shit. That's going to make I don't, me uncomfortable. I know. Look, I, look, I know what boundaries are. I've been sober long enough. I but. love it. I love that you have those boundaries because we can teach each other and others. How long have you been sober, Chris? 13 years. 13 years, no alcohol. No alcohol. Wow. Do you ever think about it? No. Uh, the only way, the only way I think about it is in context of like, how did I drink that much for that long? How am I not dead? That's the only thing I think about is like, geez, Louise, how did I do it for this long? I legit have been having the thoughts lately that everybody says you start having. Mm. And so I'm like, oh man, I better figure it out. But what I'm doing, I... I'm definitely of service. So I'm definitely spending a lot of time with other women in the community. But I also, what I'm finding is what my brain is saying, and I'm saying it out loud so I, other people can hear me because I kind of feel like they have to help hold me accountable. Like my family, my husband's name is Ty, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that was a joke. I met him. I met him, remember? <laughs> you did. Oh yeah, you did. He had a couple drinks that night. Um, so he, I don't even know where I was going with this. Oh, saying out loud about drinking. So for me, what I've noticed is this is my saying of 2020. This is why I drank so much. Mm. Oh, now I know why I drank so much. Right. This would be the time that I would start drinking. Mm-hmm. Like almost every day I'm like figuring that out. So 
I need to work on some boundaries because obviously I'm spending time with people that are triggering me for some reason. And I think this, us all being stuck in the house and quarantined and like, I can only make so many pictures out of macaroni (laughs) before I'm like, okay. Absolutely. I appreciate you so much, Chris. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been great. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it's over. Sands Bar or any other plugs that you want for sponsors or anything? Yeah, just continue to, yeah, continue to check Instagram and Facebook uh, as well as the sandsbar.com for updates. Uh, No matter what happens with this whole COVID thing, uh, we're going to continue to do virtual events. And uh, that's going to be something that we just want to work into what we do because we want to believe that it is possible to Sands Bar where you are. Uh, you can also check our Instagram for great beverages uh, that you can uh, try at home that ship directly to your door. I think that's really an important thing about staying sober is finding great drinks to celebrate. And uh, I, I think that's what's made my sobriety a lot sweeter and a lot richer is to have opportunities for celebration. So I thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Lori. It's so good to hear from you again. Love it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfell, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. Let's go do it right now. All right, all right, calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.